Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Simon McCauley. Simon is the owner and chairman of Anglo Recycling, a business in Lancashire's Rossendale Valley which recycles clothing, virgin carpet and jute sacking, materials which normally would go to landfill. It also manufactures over 150 different products of its own. Simon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you, Simon. It's a real pleasure having you join us. Now, um, the the purpose of this podcast um, is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So if we dive in by taking that word leader aside and considering that in more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and what you feel a leader should be in your own eyes. Yeah, sure. I uh, One of my heroes, uh, Scott, is Catherine Burblesing, who is the head of Michaela School in London. And she's just um, edited a book called The Power of Culture, talking about the school. And she actually commits a chapter that she writes herself to leadership. And she heads the chapter Servant Leadership. And um, she starts the chapter by quoting from Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I think what um, Paul in the letter to Philippians is getting at there is that actually we should try and put others ahead of ourselves. And we're very fortunate to have the Queen who has sort of displayed servant leadership, I think, with great effect for goodness knows how many years. And I think um, Miss Burlesing also um, gets that very well. And, and she talks in the chapter about putting um, the staff um, alongside herself, taking decisions with her staff. Um, and I think, you know, I try and do something similar. I'm not saying I'm, you know, particularly necessarily particularly successful at it, but it's all about kind of, um, it's not about you as the hero, it's about your team. And um, you as a leader are trying to get the best out of that team. And that's what I attempt to do. Mm. And thinking about your sort of personal leadership style, um, Simon, how would you go about describing that? Um, I think, uh, you know, as I've tried to describe, really, that um, uh, I'm the chairman. Um, It's important to work with my team to work out the right strategy for our business. But actually, it'll only be delivered if uh, my colleagues um, use all their different sets of skills to great to best effect. And that's what I've got to try and do is to help them to best do that. And... Leadership is something that I think we've needed now more than ever, haven't we, in a time of crisis with COVID-19, the pandemic that's, of course, um, emerged um, in real earnest uh, this year. Um, And it's been uncharted territory for us all. And today's generation of uh, business leaders, leaders of institutions, governments as well, they've all had to step up to try and chart a course through this unprecedented crisis. Um, For a business um, in your profession, uh, Simon, of course, um, recycling, how has it been navigating the challenges that the pandemic has thrown up? Because I can imagine that it's not left you completely untouched either yeah no um it was pretty scary in april um our sales uh, went down uh, to 35 percent of budget uh, the government put in place a very generous furlough scheme and um we talked i've never done so many briefings with staff um, but it was important because everybody was frightened everybody was anxious 
um, not only about the um, pandemic, but also about their future, because um, I think people were very concerned, thinking back to March, about what would happen with their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we um, asked people if they would be prepared to volunteer to carry on working. Our two biggest customers um, had indicated they wanted to carry on, and we needed to make sure that we served them um, for the long-term future of the business. So um, I was fortunate that um, we had loads of volunteers to carry on working. We've got a great big old mill, so we were able to do all the socially distanced stuff and just to take care for our staff. Um, and um, we started with, we reduced down from 40 people to 10. Um, and we've been gradually building since then. And um, I, I think that um, some of the things that we've attempted to do was to focus on um, working together. Um, it was a time of great anxiety. People had different views. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic, how dangerous was it, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt that um, we needed to uh, come together and try and establish a consensus between us and work together, not only ourselves, but also with our suppliers who were also very important to helping us to keep going. And um, it was not a time for conflict. It was not a time for disagreement. It was a time for coming together. And we've done our best with that. I'm not saying we've been perfect, but we've done our best with that. And that support has been incredibly important, hasn't it? Knowing that you're not alone in all of this and we are all in this together, particularly from sort of a mental health and a well-being perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. In terms yeah. of your own personal response, I can imagine that those exact issues, the mental health and well-being of not just yourself, um, but also your stuff as well, has really been at the forefront of what you've been doing. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, one thing we decided to do, Scott, um, which has actually worked quite well, um, was we put in place um, a furlough friends newsletter and WhatsApp group. So before everybody went off on furlough, the team, the 30 that weren't going to be working from day one, we set that up. And that's actually worked really well um, because I have been very conscious that whilst it was very demanding for those working, and it has been demanding, it's been intense, there's been anxieties, all kinds of anxieties alongside the normal business ones. It was also an anxious time for those not at work. They were stuck at home um, in a very unusual situation, not quite knowing what was going to happen. So we've done a weekly friends furlough um, newsletter, which, um, and we've tried to kind of stay in touch um, and look, I'm not saying it's been perfect, but we've, we've certainly felt that when staff have come back, they've um, in general responded with alacrity. And we've had a really good response from staff as and when we needed them, um, because it's been quite unpredictable to work out when we were going to need to bring people back. And we've often had to do it at quite short notice, but people have been tremendous. But I think it's been, and I think we're becoming increasingly aware of this, that it's been a tough time um, for people. Um, and... There's been a lot of anxiety out there, uh, out there and um, I think it has put a lot of uh, strain on people's mental health. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And, um, of course, you've talked about how um, you've responded as a uh, business, putting those um, new measures in place. But in terms of the, uh, the government guidelines to continue operating safely, just given the amount of debate there's been about just how clear they've been, have you been satisfied throughout that you've known exactly what's been expected of you? Yeah, look, I, I think... Um, I mean, it's been a tough call for the government. I think they panicked a bit up front and uh, slightly overreacted. But I, I, you know, I can understand at the end of the day, it was very uncertain at that time. The World Health Organization was talking about the death figures being pretty horrendous. Um, 
happily, it's not turned out to be anything like as serious as, as the World Health Organization said. But I think, in general, the business department's done a pretty good job. I think education, I'm not quite so sure about. It, but it feels like the education department's um, instructions have been unbelievably complicated for schools. But I think, in general, for business, there was something like a 50-page document that came out in May. We've been able to follow it reasonably sensibly. Um, I think the department's done a pretty good job, actually. And... Um, um, you know, we we I said to the staff we would you know obey the letter of the law. We have done that all the way through, but uh, we tried to be entrepreneurial as well alongside that to look after our customers as best we can. And would you say that reflecting on the experience of managing the pandemic, that there's anything that you've learned from this experience? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, um, that's, that's uh, Scott. I'm learning all the time. I'm a little bit older than you, um, and I've been in business for quite a lot of years. But um, you learn all the time, mm. and uh, um, business throws up all kinds of stuff from time to time. But uh, I suppose the one thing that uh, we've really tried to do is to look after our customers because um, whilst the staff were very anxious about the pandemic um, in the early briefings, they were also anxious about their jobs. And so we've really tried to get the balance right between um, safety of staff um, and bringing people back to work. Because we recognized there was a small risk from bringing people back to work from the pandemic. Um, but we had to balance that risk. And, and I guess in business, you know, you're often operating without all the information you need. Um, and you've just got to do the best with the information you've got. And, um, you know, we've said to staff, look, we're not promising we're going to get everything right here, but we're, we're doing our best. And, and the staff have been very understanding and sympathetic to that because um, it's felt like a big weight on my shoulders and, and the shoulders of the team at Anglo. And uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, keeps you... Uh, um, there's, there's, there's always new stuff coming around mm. the corner, Scott, you know. I really liked your response to that question, Simon. Reason being is because I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's a constant learning process. Even after so many years of experience in business, you're never a finished article, are you? And um, thinking about all of that experience that you have accumulated throughout your years in the uh, the business environment, if you did have to give some advice, actually, to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role at a firm, what sort of advice would you give them? Um, be humble. Um what, what I've discovered in business, you know, I've got lots of fancy qualifications from lots of fancy universities, but actually there's loads of stuff I don't know. Um, my wife will tell you that I'm, I'm, I can just about change a light bulb, but I'm not very good at the other stuff. So, um, And I run a big factory with lots of complicated machines, and I haven't got a clue about this, Scott. So I've had to be very humble on the engineering front, mm. but luckily I've got some uh, great colleagues who know that stuff. And, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, show humility. It, it's a bit of an old-fashioned virtue, but I think... Uh, um, you know, recognize that there are others going to be better at a lot of stuff than you and, um, you know, um, listen to them. So those, I suppose, are the two words I'd use. Incredibly sound advice indeed. In fact, Nelson Mandela once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think that advice has been epitomized by that example for certain. And thinking yeah, thanks, now... Scott. Well, I, yeah. I'm not, you know, Nelson Mandela was well ahead of me on loads of things, mm. but... Uh, um, I didn't know he said that. That's that's good, actually. I like that. Yeah, mm. I like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, reflecting on uh, that, of course, it only serves that we also talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Yeah. Um, having thought about how the pandemic has panned out thus far, what do you think is on the horizon for yourself and for Anglo Recycling over the course of the next 12 months as we adjust to the new normal? And along with that, do you think any features of this lockdown period could become a permanent way, um, could become permanent ways that business does operate? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, we're back to 85% of budget. Um, I'm pretty sure we will uh, be able to uh, get um, our budget business back to where it was before the pandemic or there or thereabouts. But we're also where there's going to be um, a recession around the corner. But we're looking for opportunities because everybody's handled the pandemic in different ways. And we think that throws up opportunities for us. So um, we are talking to competitors. We're talking to um, people in other industries. There's just lots of conversations going on at the moment. And, and I think that's quite interesting because people have had a bit of time sometimes to reflect on their businesses and they're starting to think uh, whether they want to do things slightly differently. And, and I think that'll give us opportunities. Um, uh, our biggest customer is John Lewis. Um, they are making some big changes in their business, but I think that will throw up some opportunities for us because um, Sharon White's very keen on the whole sustainability picture and so on and so forth. And that will give us opportunities. So I'm quite excited about the future. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, um, recessions do throw up opportunities. So it's not all bad. They do. That's exactly right. There will be opportunities as a result of this sort of quite difficult and quite tragic time, uh, no matter how difficult it has been. And, you know, I think it would be actually fantastic, um, Simon, having you back on the uh, the programme with us in future just to see how things are getting on in the course of the next year. And hopefully there'll be some positive news to share about what the business is doing. Well, that's very, very generous of you. And, um, you know, after making that prediction, Scott, I better uh, work hard to uh, deliver some of those things. It'll be absolutely wonderful to have you back on the show in future, Simon, for sure. I've really enjoyed having you join us today. It's been a fantastic discussion. And most importantly, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because there are still several different ways the pandemic could ultimately pan out. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's going to be upward from here. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much indeed, sir. That was Simon McCauley speaking, owner and chairman of Anglo Recycling. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his playing days, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. All of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that twenty nineteen World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know even when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.